going to uh, introduce our next speaker. He's an adjunct scholar with the Mises Institute, faculty member at uh, Mises University, completed his Bachelor of Arts in Economics at Hillsdale College, which is a college I believe a few of you are familiar with. Got his PhD in economics at NYU. He was uh, employed by Arthur Laffer at, as a research and portfolio uh, analyst. So if you have any investment questions, uh, please direct them to him uh, later on. He runs a, uh, a blog called Free Advice. Um, and that's where you can get all his free advice. Uh, any other time you want to hire him, he is not for free. Uh, he is the author of uh, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. He's written our study guides to man, economy, and state uh, with power and market. He wrote the study guide for the Institute for Human Action. His latest book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal. He is working on a very exciting project for us. If you are homeschoolers or teachers developing a curriculum in economics that he is currently now working for or working on, and uh, expect to see uh, some more product from that uh, very soon. He should have a great affinity for the Mises Institute. He, he went to uh, Mises University. Uh, but also, he, along with the previous speaker, Peter Klein, they met their respective spouses at the Mises Institute. So if you just think it's deep thinking and economic thought going on, <laughs> there's other things going on. And uh, so it, <laughs> if you've got a son or daughter that's a little hard to match, think about, think about Mises U. <laughs> Speaking today about how the Fed is retarding recovery, Mr. Robert Murphy. Well, thank you, uh, Doug, for that introduction. Uh, and, and it is true, a lot of people say, you know, oh, gee, why, why did you go into economics? And the number one reason, of course, is for the girls. That's really... Uh, <laughs> You know, there's that musicians and economists have that uh, that bond. Um, it it really is. Uh, you know, of course, when you go to talks, the first thing you do is get up. It's great to be here, but it, it really is great to be here. I love doing these events. Uh, it's it's just hilarious with the type of person that comes to these things. Let me try to think of a way to put it. You guys aren't exactly normal. Put it that way. And. Uh, <laughs> In the in the the restroom, don't worry, this joke won't get too gross. In the in the restroom, you know, there's a huge line in the men's room for the you know the quick in and out, and uh, and someone behind me said, "Oh, case of supply and demand, huh?" Right? And I just I love that, and it, that actually was good. But the one in Seattle was better. A guy, you know, with a long line to, to get to the urinals, and one guy says, "Oh, they they need to charge a higher price for the urinal use, right?" Because the so anyway. Um, so just try harder next time, guys, all right? If you're really going to make a geeky economics bathroom joke, you got to really, uh, there's a high bar we've set in previous Mises circles. Okay, so what am I, what am I, oh, I'm sorry, one last housekeeping entry. Um, I was asked to explain, Doug just alluded to the fact that we're uh, developing a, a high school curriculum. It's actually, um, I, I think it, you would be amazed at the, what, what the kids are reading these days, and I mean that in a good sense that, you know, I will, at every Mises University that we go to, and for those of you who don't know, Mises University is every summer 
where uh, typically college undergraduate kids go down to the Mises University or M Mises Institute, and we we have a week long conference. And uh, just every year, this is I'm being serious. The stuff they've read, it just it gets more and more impressive. You know that, in other words, when I was going there, I was one of the few people who had had read Human Action, let's say. And you know, other people had read parts of it, or they had read you know easier things. But I was one of the few as a student who had read it from cover to cover. But now, I mean, there's more and more people that that's just yeah. Of course, I read that. Why wouldn't I have read that? It's online. It's free. Why wouldn't I have done that? And um, you know, and it's it, it really is impressive. And so the, my point is just that actually, I think this curriculum we're working on, we had conceived of it as you know for high school kids, maybe homeschoolers. But actually, I think it'll be good for precocious seventh and eighth graders. And the the announcement I was asked to relay is that. It might not be appropriate for you guys, but if you know people in the area, this coming Friday, the 20th, I guess that would be, they are going to have a, an event at the Mises Institute uh, for, for high schoolers and, and their parents who want to come and learn about, you know, economics at, at, at the high school level. The, um, so, so anyway, we are working on that just to, so you, you have that in mind. And it, it is, it's, it's, it's fun to, you know, to, to give a lecture to a class like that or a group like that compared to you guys because here... You know, I'm going to be talking about the housing market, mortgage-backed securities, and you know, many of you might have invested in those things. And so, if I make a mistake, or Doug has been working in real estate, if I say something wrong, you will, you're going to know, and you can decide whether you're going to tell me afterward if I made a mistake. Whereas, talking to high schoolers, that they have no idea if what you're saying is right or not. So, on the other hand, you guys presumably won't throw spitballs at me. Whereas that that is always a, a danger with the high school kids. Okay, so. The, uh, what I'm talking about today is how the Fed is retarding recovery, and what I want to sort of combat is the this conventional wisdom that when you, and it's true whether you're reading the Wall Street Journal or watching CNBC or you're reading the New York Times or, or, or CNN, let's say, you know, that, that's the, the spectrum that we're supposed to have, or, or Fox News, I guess, from the so-called, you know, free marketeers to the, to the interventionists, that's, we're supposed to be getting the, the full palette there of, of possible views. But I mean, every, almost everybody is saying, with the occasional except there's a few op-ed writers in the Wall Street Journal, but the, the typical line is, even if you're against what the Fed is doing, in terms of since the, the crisis set in, the things the Fed has done, people, they generally are saying things to the effect that, yes, the Fed rescued us and it prevented another Great Depression, but we think maybe it's time to pull back those, that emergency measure, you know, to take that medicine away, because now it's done the job and now we run the risk of over-medicating the economy. Right, and, th and that, that's the threat, or to put it in more economic terms, they say, yes, the Fed, by lowering interest rates, it has stimulated recovery, and it was a much needed you know, dose of, of help from the Federal Reserve, and thank God we have the Fed, but you know, those 0% interest rates, after a while, that's gonna lead to inflation, and so that's the trade-off, that it provides a lot of help right now that's much needed to get us through this disaster, but we, they have to be prudent, and we hope they have the, um, the fortitude to, to pull that help away when the time is appropriate. And so what I want to tell you today is that's completely wrong, that everything the Fed has done since the onset of the crisis in and of itself has been a bad thing, let alone the, you know, the possible repercussions later on. So in other words, it's not merely that by doubling the monetary base in six months or whatever the exact figure is, the Fed has sown the seeds for future price inflation, and that's the only downside to be weighed against all the benefits of doubling the monetary base in six months. That no, doubling the monetary base in six months in and of itself has been a bad thing, and I want to just go through some of the, the reasons for that uh, in the talk today. All right, so, so first and foremost, just the very, you know, the thing that everyone thinks is, is the, the help, the benefit of low interest rates. 
So the idea is that if the if we didn't have a Fed, if we had a purely free market, or if Bernanke had been a mean guy and didn't want to help people, when the crisis set in, we, what what happened? And when I say when the crisis set, I, I guess largely people have in mind uh, September and October of 2008. But even you know the, the rescue measures started well before then. But let's just uh, join the debate the way most people have in mind and talk about things like after the fall of Lehman. And let me just go on a little bit of a tangent. Even right there, the debate is all screwed up when people say that, oh, you know, you had totally free market and then Lehman fails and, you know, the credit markets are royal and everyone's panicking and it would have been the end of the world financial system, but for the interventions. But I don't think that's true. So on the, for one thing, there was a, a good article, actually it was in the Wall Street Journal by um, Zingales and I think John Cochran, I, I might have my economists mix up, but... There was two Chicago school guys, and they actually had a great chart showing that the the real panic in terms of looking at the spreads between uh, you know corporate bonds and other types of debt versus what was considered to be really safe debt in terms of U.S. Treasuries, those spreads didn't explode the day Lehman failed or the day after. It was only a little bit further after, and if you look at the timeline, when uh, Paulson and Bernanke were telling Congress, we need $700 billion for this TARP or else you know, the world's going to end. Right? So that was what really made the panic start. So it wasn't the fall of Lehman per se. You really saw the you know, objective measures of panic or crisis in the system kick in only when Bernanke and Paulson were pointing at the Lehman failure and saying, because of this, you know, look, at we need $700 billion. So the idea is that maybe it wasn't that the system itself was really that precarious. It was that investors wondered, well, gee, what the heck does Paulson know that we don't know? Right. In, in retrospect, what he knew was that this will help Goldman Sachs. But, um, <laughs> but, but that's um, you, you see what I'm saying. So even the, the conventional story, the way they tell it, isn't quite right. And then even pushing it further, even if it were true that the Lehman collapse per se was really where we can point to, oh man, it's a good thing we've had the Fed and the Treasury doing extraordinary measures since then. Otherwise, the free market would have brought us to our knees. Well, no, because part of why Lehman was such a shock is that they had earlier either directly bailed out or the Fed behind the scenes to sort of broker takeovers of uh, uh, Bear Stearns and other things that were in trouble, right? And so part of why Lehman was such a shock was that was a, an about face from what the government had been doing up until then, okay? So in contrast, if, say, way back in the fall of 07, or excuse me, the summer of 07, when it was clear that, you know, the, the subprime thing was a, was a problem and that, you know, the, there's a lot of losses that were going to be on the books of these firms that had dabbled in mortgage-backed securities, if at that point George Bush had said, hey, guess what? I'm supposed to be a free market guy, and we're not doing anything to help you. This is a profit and loss system, and if you screwed up, you know, that's tough for you, and you're going to go out of business. And the Fed had said, we're not going to do anything special. We're going to look at what interest rates should be, as, you know, looking at GDP and looking at inflation expectations. We're not going to alter our policy based on the financial system. If you screwed up, that's you know tough for you. If they had done that consistently since the onset of these problems, then the Lehman failure wouldn't have been such a big deal, right? Whereas, again, the reason it was such a surprise was people had been led to believe no big firm is just going to be allowed to collapse because it's too big to fail because that's what the government had done up till then. All right, so anyway, the um, I just want to point out that the, the very first step in the argument when people are trying to explain why the Fed has saved us is, is wrong, and that the crisis that they say would have happened had we just followed laissez-faire capitalism, we don't, we don't know because they, they didn't allow laissez-faire capitalism at any stage in this. 
But okay, what about the idea of bringing interest rates down? And in here, the what they're the people who are for the Fed, the people who are saying the Fed rescued us and provided temporary relief, perhaps at the risk of long-run inflation, they're they're going to say that. The, the, the idea is pretty simple that, you know, high interest rates are, are tough. If, if you're a business person and you have bad loans on your books and you're having trouble getting financing, well, surely other things equal. If the Fed has low interest rates, it's cheaper for you to borrow money from the Fed. Or even if you're the third firm in line, if somewhere up the, high, the chain of, of lending, if they can get money from the Fed at 0% or a quarter percent interest rates, that's that's got to be a good thing, right? And I want to say that yeah, it's good from any individual firm's point of view if you want to go borrow, but it's not good from the, the system as a whole's point of view or the, the, the economy's point of view because those prices mean something. Right? So let me just give you an, an analogy, and a lot of you have studied free market economics and you'll recognize this, that it, what happens when we try to motivate the problems with price controls, let's say there's a, a blizzard in some small town somewhere and they're, you know, they're cut off from the outside world, there's a huge blizzard, and a lot of people think, oh, well, the way to help those people is to make sure that the, the local shopkeepers, they don't engage in price gouging, right? That they don't, for, for generators and batteries and canned goods and bottled water, that they don't just jack up the price and take advantage of those poor people because they get hit with the blizzard. But actually, if you've studied economics, you know that that's, that's not true. What happens in that situation is, you know, you've got a fixed supply. The demand goes way up because people are panicked that, uh-oh, we the, the trucks from... Sam's or whatever might not be able to get in here for a few days. And so the, the inclination is every household runs to the store to clean out the shelves, to stock up their pantry. But you don't want that to happen. You don't want the first 10 people who get to the store to clean out the shelves and get all the, you know, get to six weeks of canned tuna and, and bottled water. And then the person who's 11th in line gets to the store and the shelves are empty. So how do you ration the available stockpile so that everybody gets enough to get through the few days when the until the blizzard gets, you know, uh, the streets get cleared and so on, is you allow the prices to go up. All right. So that's just to, to give you an example. So you you might think that, oh, it, it, isn't it nice? Isn't it helping the people by checking the evil, greedy profit seeking of the merchants who want to exploit them in their time of need in this in this emergency? But no, actually, you're not helping them. Yeah, you're helping the people who get to the store first, but you're actively hurting the people who show up after the tuna runs out or whatever it is, the, the thing that's in short supply. Okay, so the, the, the broader point there is market prices really mean something and you're not creating more wealth by holding prices below where they should be. So then in the context of the financial crisis, yeah, when, when investors realized, oh my gosh, all these mortgage-backed securities that, that these firms are sitting on actually aren't worth what we thought. And so now a company that has a lot of these things on its books if it, if it wants to borrow money from me, well, I'm going to ask them for a much higher interest rate because they're a much uh, riskier proposition right now than I would have thought a month ago. And so that's why you see you know, the, the interest rate on, on certain corporate debt, especially for particular companies, started going way up. And so the, it, it's not true to say that by the Fed's interventions, and, and part of the way they try to measure the, the effectiveness, they say, look at Bernanke's Save the Day, is they'll show charts of the, the spread between corporate debt and treasuries, things like that. So what, what that means, I know some of you are, are new to this and you don't have a, a finance background. I'll, I'll try to simplify it. The idea is what investors were demanding in terms of an interest rate to, to lend money to the U.S. government as opposed to uh, you know, a, a major financial institution or even just to a regular Fortune 500 company. 
that, that the gap between that, because the U.S. government is considered safer, right, that it's much more likely, you know, even though the way they get their money is a bit dubious to some of us in the room, the idea is that, you know, if you buy a 10-year bond from Uncle Sam, chances are you're going to get that money paid back to you, you know, that you, Uncle Sam's not going to default to the same probability as even, you know, some other private company, even if it's a strong company, ultimately the government can just tax people and pay you off or they can print the money and, and pay you. So people aren't so much worried about the treasury literally defaulting on its bonds. Although the the probability of that event, uh, it's it's like two, two and a half to three times higher now than it, than it was like 18 months ago. If you look at um, the prices for certain things protecting you from that event. So, so even though it's still considered the U.S. Treasury is still considered a safe investment. It's a lot riskier now in, in investors' opinions than it was even just 18 months ago. But anyway, the, the point is that's one way that they were gauging the, uh, the, the fear in the credit markets and what people thought in terms of the stability of the system is they looked at the gap, the, the premium investors needed to be paid in order to lend their money to a private institution versus giving it to the, the safe U.S. government. And so that those spreads exploded as I say, in the fall of 2008, and since then they've come way down. And so that's, again, people are pointing that to say that that shows that Bernanke's been successful, but but no, he hasn't because, again, that's that's equivalent or analogous to if right when the when the blizzard sets in, if the free market price of tuna and bottled water and generators went through the roof, and then the government did all sorts of measures, you know, like threatening fines and maybe using tax incentives to to bring the, the price of tuna back down to the pre-crisis level, that wouldn't be a good thing. And, and so you see something similar here. Now it's a bit, the, the reason it's, it's a bit odd, you don't see immediate shortages, because that's what happens when it's a physical thing like tuna. If the price is lower than what the market price really should be, the, the, the store literally runs out of it. And so that's how you know right away that there's some intervention going on and this isn't right, because the 11th person in line gets there, there's no tuna left. Whereas with the credit markets and with fiat money, it's it's hard to, to point to the, the specific problem because it's not that they run out of dollar, dollar bills because Bernanke just you know make you know spend all you want we'll we'll make more right you see so it's a little bit weird there but the, but the principle is still the same to the extent that you think interest rates mean something then clearly by them pushing them down below where they should be they they've distorted things and in particular what what happens is you know think of what the mistakes people were making during the credit and the housing boom, part of what was going on there is consumers weren't saving enough, right? The people in the years 2003, four, and five, they were getting their paychecks, their salaries, whatever, their normal sources of income, and then they weren't putting much of it aside into their 401k or whatever their sources of savings were because their house was going up at double-digit rates in some areas. And so they quite rationally thought, you know, if, if that house price rise were legitimate and were going to last, well, it's dumb for me to be putting aside 15% of my paycheck in the, in the bank or in the stock market or whatever when my, my house is appreciating so much. And so then when the market crashed, the housing market crashed, people in a sense realized they had a lot less saved up than they thought they were going to have in the year 2008 when they were, you know, planning their behavior for earlier years, and they thought, how much net wealth am I going to have in 08 and 09 and, and 2010? Their plans were totally screwed up by the collapse in the housing market. And so people needed to be saving more. And the, one of the ways the market would sort of give them a kick in the pants is if interest rates went way up. And so people now, even on their own, are paying down credit card debt and other things 
but can you imagine how much more quickly they would be paying it down if you know the the APR on your on your normal credit card were 50% right now instead of whatever the the rate is all right so my my point is just the reaction people need to make once they got the new information should have been a lot uh, quicker and, and more severe and yet, in a sense, what's happened is that the, the government has done everything in its power to tell people, oh, don't worry, just keep living the way you were during the housing boom. You know, we'll get through this. There's no reason to, to alter your behavior. And, and, you, and we know that that's the case, that they're trying to get people to spend more, to go out and, and borrow more, and stop paying down your debt. That's a bad thing. Okay. So, so again, lowering interest rate per se is not a good thing if the interest rate should have been really high. Another uh, problem with what the Fed's doing is it's... it's uh, fulfilling or, or, or perpetuating what's called moral hazard. And there, I'll be brief on this particular point, it's, it's a pretty simple case or simple argument that what the Fed has done, among all the other things it's done, is it's bailed out these large institutions that should have gone bankrupt or they should have been you know, taken over by rival firms uh, through various mechanisms, but largely because part of what the Fed has done is, and, I, and this morning I didn't check the, the, the latest figure, but the Fed has taken onto its books through various measures, through uh, swaps and, and, and short-term operations where the Fed you know, borrows something from a firm and gives them treasuries in exchange or, or gives them uh, reserves in exchange, but then technically they have to keep renewing that. Or just literally as an outright purchase, the Fed has gone into the market, written checks on thin air, and bought up hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, mortgage-backed securities and debt issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Actually, it's over a trillion at this point since the inception of the crisis. Right? So, the, so part of what happened is specific firms that made bad bets that they invested in mortgage-backed securities, for example, they're sitting and they should have gone under. They should have been taken over. But instead, the Fed comes in the night on the white horse and, and buys them off their books, so the banks clear off their books a little bit, and now they're no longer insolvent, but only because the Fed rescued them, right? So in terms of if the system as a whole, that malinvestment is still there. It's not that the Fed undid the mistake. All the Fed did was say, okay, instead of you, the person who made the mistake, instead of you bearing the brunt of it, we'll just basically spread it to everyone who uses U.S. currency, right? Because when the Fed creates money out of thin air to absorb that loss, in a sense, it's, you know, who, who loses, it's everybody, it's the people who hold U.S. dollars that now are depreciated. And, and one way to see that is if the Fed had done nothing, you saw prices were, remember, prices were falling in uh, the winter of 2008, they would have fallen a lot more if the Fed had done nothing. The, the Fed, in addition to all the other things, the Fed increased the actual supply of money in people's pockets. So I'm not just talking about the banking system, but I mean currency and circulation, uh, people's checking balances, that number went up something like 17% in the second half of 08. And so uh, as much as prices fell anyway, like that, those, the price fall was being buoyed up by the fact that they allowed the money supply to expand. And so if they had really done nothing and just sat back and let the thing run, run its course, prices would have fallen a lot more. So you would have seen a lot of firms failing, but people who had nothing to do with mortgage-backed securities, people who were just living on a fixed income, let's say, or, or other workers who weren't getting laid off, they would have gone to the store and they would have seen prices falling, so they would have had more purchasing power. So it's um, people are, are a lot of times acting as if the only way the Fed's actions are going to hurt is if prices rise down the future, but no, prices did already rise relative to where they would have gone had the Fed done nothing. All right, so. 
So even there, there was a transfer from people who had nothing to do with the housing uh, mistakes of the housing years, and we're, we're going to the to the, uh, the the people who who got bailed out. So why why is that a problem? Besides just the inherent injustice of it, the the simple transfer of wealth from people who had nothing to do with the mistakes to giving it, you know, hundreds of billions to the people who made these mistakes. The problem is the precedent it sets. That uh, to the extent that a lot of the mistakes made during the housing boom years were because managers were incompetent or rather what they were doing is they were being a bit too aggressive during the housing boom, right? They were making money hand over fist when home prices were rising at double digit rates. There was a lot of money to be made in uh, financial institutions, you know, going around to banks saying, I don't care who you lend the money to, just get people into houses, get mortgages, we'll take them off your books, we'll combine them, slice them and dice them and then sell them off to investors in China and elsewhere and then we'll earn our commissions. The, you know, people at the time, some people knew that that's risky. What if the housing market collapses? And so the way, if, if you were a, a firm that didn't engage in such riskiness, the way you could justify your lower profits to your shareholders is to say, don't worry, you know, we, we think that with these people, they're, they're going to get caught with their pants down and the housing market collapses. We don't know exactly when, but then you'll see why, you know, the prudence of our approach is better that yeah, we're not making the, the huge returns and our executives aren't getting these multi-million dollar bonuses, but we're looking at the long term. Well, that advice now has just been rendered moot that that was a dumb thing for them to do. The, the ideal strategy is make a bunch of money during the housing boom, pay your investors you know, the, the huge returns, and then if there is a crash, you, you'll probably get bailed out, right? So it's, it's not that they knew exactly when the crash was gonna happen or even if it would happen, but the point is that the lesson now that has been taught to players in the financial market is not look out for your bottom line and take a long-term view. Don't just try to maximize short-term returns the way, you know, the caricature of what Peter Klein was talking about, that the way some writers think people on Wall Street are geared to believe. Well, yeah, they've just been taught that that is what happens. That is the way to succeed because, you, you know, the rules are going to change. You don't know what's going to happen. The Tim Geithner could just wake up next week and and say we're going to cancel all these types of loans or we're going to inter introduce some new lending program to bail out firms that are getting in trouble. So you see that the incentives have all been changed. Okay, uh, let me move on a little bit here. The Another downfall of what the Fed's been doing is it's, it's picking winners and losers. Okay, so it's a lot of people talk as if it's just lending help to the economy in general and then, you know, again, at the expense of all possible inflation down the road. But no, the Fed has come in and specifically bailed out individual sectors, and we can only assume sectors that, uh, you know, it's not that they, they randomly chose them or that they asked a bunch of social workers, which areas of the economy should we help? You know, and they said, well, I think we, you should buy, uh, you know, debt issued by companies that make baby formula and, and uh, you know, give money to buy, buy stock issued by homeless shelters. No, that's not what the Fed's been, been investing in. They have been investing in, of course, the huge Wall Street firms, the ones, and again, if you, if you go in and look at the particulars of what they did, it's, there's a, it's not just a cliche to say Goldman Sachs is, is behind a lot of it. It's not just the direct uh, payments they were getting, but even the, um, the rescue of AIG, a lot of that people are saying is because they think that uh, AIG was the, the counterparty to a lot of, of uh, Goldman Sachs credit default swaps, so that if AIG went down, Goldman would have been one of the ones hurt. And also, the foreign banks that benefited from all these uh, Fed interventions, they also, a lot of them, it's now coming to light over the last few weeks, 
the positions they were in, the reason they were so vulnerable was because of deals brokered by Goldman Sachs employees. Okay, so it's not merely the direct losses that Goldman would have suffered if the Fed literally did nothing when, when Lehman failed and, and, and AIG was on the ropes, but also a lot of their business partners would have lost billions and then they would have blamed that in a sense on the advice and the, and the deals that they got through Goldman Sachs. So again, that's just it's not just Goldman Sachs, of course, but the point is, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, it did not just say, oh, the economy needs a trillion dollars in liquidity, so let's throw a dart at a board and just start buying stocks that the dart lands on. No, they intervene in specific sectors to the detriment of others. So that's bad on many accounts. Again, it teaches businesses that what you need to do to succeed is not serve your customer, is not uh, make sure you're, you're returning value to your shareholder and watching the, the, the assets on your, on your balance sheet but rather the way to succeed is to make sure you remain in good with whoever's running the Fed. I mean, Bernanke right now is incredibly powerful. He's arguably one of the most powerful people on the planet if you assume that he really does, you know, behind the scenes, we don't know exactly how much power he has. Maybe somebody tells him what to do. We don't know. But in terms of what the Fed chair ostensibly has the power to do, that's incredibly powerful. He literally could destroy the economy tomorrow. He could just say, you know, we're going we're gonna, to uh, sell everything off the books. Right, you know, and that, and that would just cause the markets in turmoil. Or he could say, "We're going to buy up every mortgage in America," and technically, he has claimed the right to do that. And I, many of you probably know this, but so so the the Fed had injected at the time, I think it was about 700, 800 billion into the financial markets. This was in December of '08. Okay, so a few months after the rescues really got into full swing, and Congress calls Bernanke before them and said, "Can you please tell us?" who you're giving this money to. You know, we're not disputing that you have the right to create hundreds of billions out of thin air and just hand it out to people. Can you at least tell us who you're giving it to? And he said, no, that would defeat the purpose of the program, right? Now, his, his rationale was it would cause a stigma. You know, if, if, he, if people knew that we gave 13 billion to Citigroup to, you know, take something off their books, then people would, you know, and, and you don't want the bankers to feel bad. So, um, it's all about self-esteem on Wall Street, right? So, but, but literally, I mean, if you just think about that, that's shocking that not only does Bernanke walk around literally with the ability to write checks with, you know, it's not like there's a pile of money and every time Bernanke writes a check up, now he has less reserves, he can write as much as he wants, all right? And, and people, they have a hard time grasping it because it it's just such a crazy idea, but they've literally added more than a trillion dollars of assets to their books and the only way he gets penalized is on the, you know, the balance sheet up, oh, your, your assets went up and then, you know, your, your liabilities went up, but there's no, there's nothing to stop him from doing that. And he doesn't, like I say, he doesn't even have to tell Congress who he's given the money to. So anyway, that, that's part of the impetus behind the, the audit, the Fed bill is, is just to say, well, at least let us know who you're shoveling these billions into the pockets of. Okay. Let me, uh, have a few minutes left here. A few other, uh, problems and what the Fed's been doing. The, the whole, remember the whole ostensible purpose of these interventions in the credit market is we got to get businesses lending, or sorry, banks lending to businesses, right? That they say there's, uh, uh, you know, all these businesses out there that the way they pay their employees is they borrow money every month, right? And which is crazy that you talk to an actual, especially a small business owner and say, do you actually use, you know, borrow money in order to pay your employees and make payroll every month? And I talked to a few of them and they said, well, I'd be in real serious trouble if I did do that. Right, that, that that would be a sign of, of an emergency. That, that that's not a, a standard operating procedure that you borrow money just to be able to pay your employees that month. But anyway, that was that was the whole rationale, if you remember, from TARP and all the things that the Fed's been doing. And that's always why they say, you know, Geithner, when he was on his town hall meeting with CNBC, 
you know, they never say, oh, we're, we're bailing out the bankers because they made a bunch of losses and, and, and they shouldn't have to deal with that. They say, no, it's regrettable. We'd like to let them all fail and, and you know, eat the, uh, the results of their, their past mistakes, but we can't because then the financial system collapses and then you lose that credit intermediation process that you got savers over here, borrowers over here, and the banks are in the middle, you know, channeling the savings into the hands of the borrowers. So, um, Beyond the problems that we've talked about, by that by the moral hazard, they've the people in the middle who are responsible are the ones who've proven themselves to be incompetent. And besides the fact that the price, the terms on which these these borrowings are occurring are not the right prices. Besides those two problems, you got the fact that the borrowing is way down, and we don't know in the alternate universe the Fed had done nothing. What would the borrowing be like? But it's just I think it's ironic if you look at the loans to, to businesses from, uh, from banks, commercial loans to businesses, they were at an all-time historical high in October of 2008. And since then, they have plummeted something like 17%. Okay, so I'll say that again. The, the thing that we're trying to rescue was at an all-time high right when TARP kicked in, and then since then, it's fallen like 17%. So if you looked at a chart from your point of view, it's like this, and then it's like this. And the inflection point is right when all these emergency measures to boost lending to small businesses kicked in. And it's um, proponents of it will say, well, if it hadn't been for TARP, it would have fallen even faster. And that perhaps that's true. But again, the, the people are, you probably wouldn't have known that unless I told you, or if you heard it from somewhere else, if you listen to the conventional wisdom and people justifying the interventions, you would have thought loans to businesses were collapsing, especially real estate loans were collapsing. And then they finally started picking back up once TARP and stuff kicked in. And, but, but again, that, that's not true. The so-called credit crunch when people were worried about it, it was just the rate of increase of loans was tapering off, but it didn't actually start plummeting until after. And one of the specific things the Fed has been doing, and some economists, you know, they can't understand why, is the Fed's paying interest on reserves. All right, so it's a little bit technical, but if you're a commercial bank, you can have reserves. It's basically your checking account with the Fed. And the Fed, which is a relatively new thing, it didn't used to do this, is paying interest to banks to keep their money parked at the Fed. So many of you may have thought, gee, I thought the Fed was doing everything in its power to get banks to make new loans. No, it's not. It's, in a sense, literally paying banks to not make loans. And again, we don't know how much loan making would have occurred because it is a bad environment and the banks are, you know, they have huge losses. But my point is just, it's ironic that we think the Fed is trying to promote lending when, no, they're literally paying banks not to make new loans, but to keep money on deposit with the Fed. Okay, the very last point I want to make out a minute left here is... Of course, the, the thing everyone talks about, the inflation uh, concern. But there, people are acting as if, so far it hasn't been a problem, but once price inflation gets to 5 6 7% down the road, we don't know exactly when, then we'll see the downside of all the beneficial things the Fed has done up till now. And I want to say, no, right now, the threat of that is retarding recovery. I mean, just think about it. You personally, you haven't been trying to look, to find the best ways to, to serve customers or to, you know, where's my money going to make the highest rate of return over the next few years? And in, in that sense, you know, channeling resources to where they're going to yield the most fruit for consumer. No, you're wondering, man, if, is this inflationary time bomb real? And where am I going to put my money? Should I just put it in gold or silver? Or should I, you know, buy real estate in Asia? Right? So when people are worried about massive inflation, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? That, that, that sort of, in a sense, takes away the whole benefit of a monetary economy is when people start thinking in terms of barter and, you know, I've been talking to some of you guys 
and, and you guys are more paranoid than I am, which is saying something about, you know, we need to get, you know, oh, I got my shut, I got this much, you know, ammunition and this much bottled water and, you know, this starts to end. And it's, you know, hybrid seeds, what have you. And that's, that's not good for the economy, you know, in terms of if, if those, it would be good if those threats weren't there and people didn't need to worry about stocking up on hybrid seeds, but instead could worry about, you know, let me try to get more customers for my business or whatever the issue is, okay? So my point is just even the, though the, the price inflation threat hasn't kicked in yet, just the fact that right now everyone's worried about that, the fact that gold's, you know, up, what is it, 11, 18 or something like that. I mean, those are already signs that, that resources are being misallocated. Now, in other words, we're sort of battening down the hatches and people are sort of, you know, pulling up into a shell and getting ready for the storm that's going to hit. And I do think it's going to hit. And so the point is that in and of itself is retarding recovery, that if people weren't worried about that, the Fed really had done nothing and the dollar was a lot stronger now and there weren't, you know, and gold was at 600 because it would have kept falling the way, you know, oil prices collapsed. I mean, people would have been directing their resources and their, their time into productive things rather than just trying to, to hang on to their principal in light of this coming inflationary storm. Okay, so with that um, wonderfully chipper note, I will end. Thanks a lot.